How do you go about making decisions? Whether it's a large decision like purchasing a new home or buying a new car or something small like what flavor of soda should I purchase today or what kind of coffee should I have? Decisions large and small take time to make. But how do you make those decisions? Are you analytical? Do you sit and consider all the variant options? Or is it more of a, we'll see what comes to me? Often my family is frustrated by my decision-making process, not because I make rash decisions, but because often I contemplate decisions from small things like uh, what color uh, of paint should I buy to what particular thing should I do. Uh, They grow frustrated with me because I will kind of go back and forth at the store. I don't know if I should buy this. I read the reviews. I get on Amazon and I see, you know, what kind of reviews uh, it has. You know, is it a good product? Uh, One of the things I found recently about myself when I'm making a decision When I'm thinking about a product, should I buy this product or should I not buy this? Should I buy maybe the competitor's version? Is by looking at pictures of the product in use. I found that immensely helpful. And so on Amazon, there'll be little pictures of someone using the product. Say, okay, I think I can kind of visualize a bit of this particular product in action. Um, Thinking about it and all of the specs that go into it. But how do you make decisions? How do you go about that process? Is it something that's sort of just in your gut when you feel that little, oh, yeah, that, that's it, that feels right? Or, or maybe when you're, you're thinking about, you know, that looks good today. Hmm, that, I think I'm going to go with that sandwich. Even though I know that I shouldn't eat it, it just looks really, really good. Have you ever considered how much emphasis we put on appearances in the decision-making process. Uh, Of course, we are told that we live in in the day of the eye, where it's a visual age. We want to visually see everything. Uh, We're not so much concerned, perhaps, with smelling things, but but by seeing things. If we could see it, uh, advertisers spend millions of dollars not putting up monochromatic-looking signs, but things that are vivid, This is why the whole entertainment culture has been driven by seeing uh, HD, you know, right? Remember when HD was something really cool and and you had to go get an HD TV. Um, Now it's, you know, 4K and and who knows what it'll be next. Next it'll, you know, maybe be popping out from the screen in in sort of uh, crazy fashions. But but regardless, we are people that, 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 that love appearances. We love to see. We judge things so often by appearances, but we'll be the first people who say, oh, you know, I don't judge by appearances. You know, it's about what's on the heart, not about the way they look and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, you and I make decisions often based on appearances, based on the way things look. We'll judge whether or not a, a situation is safe or dangerous based on appearances. Now, appearances and and making decisions based on appearances is not inherently wrong. Well, of course, I mean, you're not going to go out and buy a a car that looked like it got rolled down a hill and say, wow, look at that sweet ride. I think I want to buy that. Or a, a house where it looks like it has been abandoned for some decades, unless you're doing a fixer up or something of that sort. 
No, appearances are are sometimes good. After all, we were created by God to enjoy the the beautiful things that he's made. I mean, after all, God didn't create flowers of all the same colors, but he created a a variety of flowers that we might enjoy their beauty and, and see their appearances. But although things are were created by God we understand that through the fall those things are no longer perfect we know that sometimes things that are judged as beautiful are are actually dangerous there's a type of cherry a tree, not that cherries over here, but a type of a, a cherry, a dead cherry. It looks beautiful, it's luscious, it's red. It, it looks like you just grab it and eat it. But the fruit of that cherry contains a sort of cyanide for which if you were to eat, you would die within minutes. We have long learned in this world that appearances aren't everything. Uh, we are told as children, don't judge a book by its cover. We've long learned that sometimes things that look good actually kill us. Eat enough good-looking Big Macs and you will die. But we soon forget that appearances aren't everything. We're even told in scriptures that Satan masquerades himself Not in a demonic, ugly form like Hollywood would like us to think. Rather, he masquerades as an angel of light. He looks good and appealing and attractive. How much of a premium do you place on appearances? Keeping up appearances. Making sure that people see you as someone's good Because on the outside, you look like you're all together on the inside. Well, friends, that's what we want to think about this morning as we consider how God makes decisions. What is it that God uses? What metric does God use? What analytical uh, uh, metric, if you will, that does he use to analyze a situation and make a decision? Before we read the text, I know it's been a couple weeks, so thankful for Rod's gift of preaching and just allowing my mind to rest, and uh, uh, hopefully that will be helpful for us as a people. But just to reorient us around, again, to 1 Samuel, uh, we've been over the last few months studying this tremendously helpful book. Uh, it's a helpful book in that it displays God so clearly. Uh, you, you just can't help but see God as the main character of this wonderful book. And, and within the opening of chapter 16 here, as we'll consider this morning, it is a shift in the narrative. Uh, the story of First Samuel and Second Samuel, really one story uh, that's been split into two stories and two books in our English Bibles, is really uh, composed of three characters. There's a big story, the overarching story of First and Second Samuel is about this search for a king, about this leader who will lead God's people. And so many have uh, termed this, summarized First Samuel as the story of David. Now I think more helpfully would be to see this is the story of God, about how God is the true king, how God is the true leader of his people. So if we were to take that view, then, then there are really three characters that, that sit under the umbrella 
of God is the true king. The first character was Samuel. The second character is Saul. And the third main character is David. And in chapter 16 is the shift from Saul being king to David being king. And over the next few weeks, what you'll begin to see is Saul begin to fade into the background and David being raised up as the true king of Israel. This inner story focuses on David as the main character. And throughout the remaining chapters, we'll see Saul still sitting on the throne, all the while David being the king. And through this time, I want you to focus on David's character. Because the narrator has crafted these stories in such a way as to see the kind of king that God's people truly needed. Saul is still seen as the king from the people's perspective. But from God's perspective, it's David that is now the king. Through his actions, and particularly his following the Lord's will and his word, we will see David prove himself to be the king God's people truly needed. The king, as we are told, after God's own heart. Let's read about this king and consider its application to our lives this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 16. I invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, just grab that Bible right in front of you and turn to page 238 and locate the big number 16. And we'll begin reading there. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And Samuel said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And Samuel consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on appearances or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shemaiah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. 
And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and well, and this harmful spirit departed from him. The Lord graciously provides his people the king they needed. A king who would follow and obey his word and who would deliver them from their enemies. This is what we see God doing here. I tried to emphasize as I read two words that are repeated throughout. One word that's significant for the whole, le- the whole book, which is the word seen. He saw. I've seen a man named David. Uh, I, he looked upon Eliab. All of these words help to capture and conjure up what is going on as a, as a theme in the text. This, this scene, appearances. But also another word is re- re- repeated throughout. And that's the word provided. First in verse 1, I have provided for myself. Again, I have provided among the sons of Jesse a king. And then later we see... Verse 17, so Saul said to his servants, provide for me someone who can play well. Provisions. Based on vision or based on appearances or based on the heart. Here we see that God is providing his people a king. You see, the people wanted a king. You remember uh, many weeks ago we considered that text where the, the nation of Israel had really grown up as a young child among a bunch of bad school kids and they were influenced by the nations around them and they were influenced in really poor ways. The nations around them had kings and they were jealous. They wished that they could have a king also. They thought that having a king would be the magic bullet, the pill that would fix all their problems. If we were just like the world around us, then all of our problems would go away. And so they cried out to God, God, give us a king, give us a king. Well, God in his grace gave them a king. 
But the first king that he gave them was a king to teach them a lesson. King Saul didn't turn out to be that great of a king. Uh, king Saul had a problem. The problem was King Saul, and particularly his heart. Saul's heart was, was wicked, though externally he looked to be really impressive. We are told that his head was taller from shoulder upwards. He was taller than any other person in the world. That means he didn't have he didn't have like a big head. That just meant that his head, right, was above everyone else's. He was a tall man. He was a fit man. He worked as a farmer. He had a great physique. We are told also that he was rich. His father Kish had a a handful of donkeys and farming. We are told here that God rejected him. Rejected him because Saul wanted to follow Saul more than he wanted to follow God. And because of that, the Lord ultimately rejected him because Saul couldn't obey the word of the Lord. And that's what we considered a few weeks ago. In chapter 15, God had given Saul some commands. He had said, hey, listen, this is what I want you to do. It's really simple. It's very clear. I want you to go and do this task. I want you to annihilate these people. And Saul said, okay, but with provision. And he, he didn't fully obey the word of the Lord. And because of that, he was disposed as being king. And in the midst of this, in the midst of a rebellious king and a rebellious people, God does not abandon his people. God doesn't say, okay, you know what? I'm done with them. They don't want me as king? Fine. I'm just going to go do my own thing. Fine. You know what? I'm just going to go play in my own sandbox and I'm gonna, I don't care about these people anymore. He doesn't do that. In grace and gracious and mercifully, he is patient with his people. He is patient in the midst of their sin and He provides for them a king that they truly needed. We'll see really two points to this sermon. Verse is 1 through 13. The Lord provides a king who obeys. And we're just going to get a glimpse of David this morning. We're going to see this worked out in the, in the weeks ahead. A king who obeys. A king after God's own heart. So if you want to know, what does it mean that he's a, God, he's a, he's a man after God's own heart? In other words... His heart follows God. He wants to do the will of the Lord. His great desire is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That, that's His chief aim in life, to honor God, to give Him glory. Now that doesn't mean that David is sinless. As we'll see as the story unfolds, David has sin in his life. David will fall terribly in 2 Samuel. In the second latter half of the story, David will fall by sending and murdering Uriah and by taking Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. We know that David is not perfect, and so nobody, in no ways do we mean to understand that a, a, a man who follows the Lord is perfect. As we'll see, we need a king who's perfect, and we'll see that David points to such a king. But, but first in the text, in verses 1 through 13, we see that the Lord provides a king who obeys. And then secondly, in verses 14 through 23, we see that he provides an ordinary king who will do extraordinary things. That the Lord is providing an ordinary king who will do extraordinary things. So first, 
a king who obeys. We're told in verses 1 through 5 that the Lord is providing a new king for himself. I want you to notice here in the text what it says. I have provided, verse 1, a king for myself. For myself. Notice he doesn't say I've provided my people a king, but I've provided myself a king. And then later in verse 3, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Before we get into what that means, I want you to sort of orient you around what's happening. We're told in the story that, that Samuel is throwing himself a little pity party. After all, Samuel is the one who has been uh, raised up by God to anoint the next king. He is the figure in the history of Israel who transitions Israel from judge leadership to the monarchy. He was the man called by God, raised up in Eli's house to anoint the next king. He was the one who picked Saul. He was the one who went and said, Saul is a good-looking man. He looks like somebody who could lead this nation. He based it entirely on appearances, as I already mentioned. And he chose Saul, and, and now the Lord is rejected. Samuel's choice has really turned out to be a terrible one. And he's grieved, we are told, over Saul. This morning, if you've ever made a bad decision in your life, and I'm sure you've made many if you're like me, Oftentimes, we are up late at night or throughout the night grieving over our bad decisions, almost to the point of tears. We, we can't seem to escape uh, our decisions. They, they haunt us. We're like, why did I do that? I'm sure many times uh, you'll be just doing something in the yard or at home, and you'll be reminded of something you did when you were a teenager. And you would say, why did I do that? Why was I so foolish as to make such a bad, bad decision? I mean, you feel almost feel embarrassed. You're like, oh, I don't even want to think. Oh, it's, you feel dirty just thinking about, why did I? I'm so dumb. Well, this is Samuel. That's how he felt. What did I do? What, what has become of this place? What, what have I done? How have I led these people? I was, I was the righteous one. I was the holy one. I was the one that was the point. And here I've made this terrible decision. And so while Samuel is at home throwing his little pity party for himself, God is saying, hey, knock, knock. I'm not done. I haven't thrown in the towel. I'm still here. I haven't left. I haven't, I'm not abandoning these people. Even though the people had sinned, God was it graciously. He's like, I'm still at work. I'm still going to do this. And in grace, the Lord says, I'm going to provide myself a king. Myself. In other words, the king of Israel was not to point to himself, but to another. The true king of Israel, the one who was going to follow God, was ultimately going to be pointing people to Yahweh. That's why God says, I'm raising up a king who, for myself, a king who will give me glory. The king of Israel was to be a king who was to glorify God and bring praise to God and to God alone. And I want you to think about that in light of what David does in his life. Penning dozens upon dozens of psalms 
that begin with, sing to the Lord, praises do His name. Sing to the Lord, give praise to Him, all you His people. God was raising up a king who would point the people to God. We're told in the text here that God is raising up a king from the sons of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. The Bethlehemites are are descendants of Judah. They are there in Bethlehem territory. In other words, they are a a nobody town. Now, now I know for us Christians, we we know Bethlehem is, is infamous and famous because our Lord. But to the Israelites, Bethlehem wasn't on the map. Okay? If you were to pull out your phone as you were zoomed out, you know the big cities are always on the map, right? Uh, Bethlehem wasn't on the map. Uh, Jerusalem would have been on the map, but Bethlehem wouldn't have been on the map. Uh, Bethlehemites weren't, you know, the the, the crazed people. And, and as you read the book of Judges, you will see why. They had some sin issues going on there in the town of Bethlehem. We are told that Jesse the Bethlehemite, Jesse is not really from a very good Bible line. He's not from the most notorious, though perhaps. He is a descendant of Judah, and of course a distract descendant of Judah through Judah's inappropriate relationship with Tamar. Tamar and him had a relationship there, and you can read more about that in Genesis. Uh, and uh, they had a son named Perez, and Perez, uh, Perez had children, and, and Jesse was, was a descendant of this illicit relationship. Um, of course, we know that Jesse also comes from the lineage of Ruth and Boaz. Again, not the best of lineage. After all, Jesse's grandmother isn't even an Israelite. All of this is to say that this is a very unimpressive and really insignificant family. To say the least, Jesse, nor his son David, nor any of his sons, were the perfect pedigree one would expect for a king. If you've ever studied much of European history, we know there's much to do about pedigree and about lineage Very important in monarchies that the descendants come from good blood. Often look at that lineage. Well, well, frankly, the sons of Jesse aren't that impressive, and Jesse himself doesn't come from an impeccable line. Yet, this is exactly how God often works. He he takes the outcasts, the insignificant, the really outliers, the outcasts, and raises them up. He takes those that the world unfolds really doesn't notice and sets them up in the highest position. God is acting like He always does. He takes those on the outside and brings them in. Or as the Lord says, it's those who are least in the kingdom who will be promoted to the first. Well, as the story goes on in an ironic way, Samuel here, we are told in verse 2, is afraid of Saul. Saul is no dummy. Uh, Saul knows that Samuel has been anointed by the Lord to be the one who anoints kings. Uh, At the top of Samuel's title, it is King Anointer. That's who he is. Saul knows that that's his job. And so Saul most likely was keeping an eye on Samuel. 
lest Samuel be out on circuit and do a deviation from that normal route that he would take. And after all, he shouldn't have been in Bethlehem. That would have surprised many, and word may have gotten back. But, but really, in an ironic way, Samuel is afraid of Saul. Now, I say ironic because I want to remind you of what Samuel's just done. So, so if you have your Bibles, just back up here um, to just a few verses back in verse 32 at the top of the page there. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, said, surely the bit... The bitterness of death has passed. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. In samurai fashion, Samuel has just mutilated and chopped up the king of Agag. Yet here in our text, as maybe months later, he is hiding out afraid of Saul. But by grace, he trusts the Lord. And we're told that he goes and he's confused. He says, Lord, listen, Saul's going to kill me. And God gives him here in the text a surprising way, gives him a cover story for how he can go about his work and anoint the next king of Israel. And even in a surprising way, in verse 3, we're not surprised when he comes to Bethlehem, in verse 4, excuse me, and the Bethlehemites, the elders of the city, are like, hey, are you coming here peaceably? Because like we just heard you just chopped up a king and uh, we're not sure if we want you here. Uh, but by God's grace, he's working here. And, and Samuel obeys the Lord and he goes to Jesse here in the text. And, and what I want you to see here is that the Lord is using Samuel yet again to raise up the king for himself. Well, as the story goes on, as he arrives into town, we are told that he begins to, to assemble together Jesse and his sons. He consecrates them, which means he gets them ready for the sacrifice. He's going to make a sacrifice. They're going to eat that sacrifice and have a big party afterwards. And as he comes to Jesse, he says, Jesse, I want you to get your sons together. And so Jesse assembles together seven of his sons. Now notice, someone's missing. So Jesse doesn't have seven sons. He has eight sons. It's very important to see because Jesse himself doesn't see David as anyone significant even within his family lineage. And as Jesse brings his sons before him, he goes in descending order. He begins with the firstborn Eliab and on down the line. And we see in the text in verse 6 that when they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. The Lord looked, as I said earlier, is significant. That's the same word that's used back at, in 1 Samuel in chapter 11, or excuse me, 1 Samuel in chapter 9, when he looks on Saul and assesses Saul based on his outward appearance. He looked attractive. Samuel here is falling into the same trap as he did before. He hasn't learned his lesson. As moments ago, he's weeping over his bad choices, but it seems that his decision-making process hasn't been changed. He still is looking at the external rather than the internal. 
For Samuel, what made a good king was apparently someone who was attractive. And we know this true today. We act the same way. I mean, after all, how often do we see politicians, as we'll be seeing in in the months ahead, right? We'll be dreading those awful commercials over and over and over again. We'll see those commercials as the midterm elections come, and and we'll be quickly fast-forwarding with our DVR through them. uh, But we'll see. We won't see ugly people on the screen. No, we'll see very attractive people. People who look good to the eyes. People who look strong. Who have strong voices. Strong mannerisms that stand tall. That that aren't slunched over and timid and feel weak. We assess people so often in those ways. And and here Samuel is doing the same thing. He's saying, look, this guy's going to do a good job. Look at him. He's a sharp looking man. He looks strong. More than that, he's the firstborn. You see, in this culture, it was the firstborn that was often looked to as the one who is to lead in the death of the father. And so as Je- if Jesse was to die, then the lie would take over and he would be in charge. He would be the run and then on down the line. But in the midst of this, we see the Lord's rebuke in verse 7, don't we? But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on the appearance or on height or stature because I have rejected him. A similar language that he uses in in chapter 15 when he says, I have rejected Saul from being king over Israel. Here he says, I have rejected him. I despise him. That is not him. That's not because Eliab, there was something in him inherently about him. We don't know anything about him. We don't know. Maybe there was sin in his life. We really don't know. The point of the text isn't, you know, Eliab had some issues and, you know, maybe he had some skeletons in the closet and, and the Lord knew that. That's not the point of the text here. The point of the text is this. The Lord does not look on external things, but on the heart. We're told the reason in verse 7 why the Lord rejected him. Look with me there. It says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Two things I want you to note here. Number one is the otherness of God. The Lord sees, not as man sees. In other words, don't take your ability to see and equate it with God's vision. That your perspective is the same as God's perspective. What God is saying is my perspective is different. My vantage point is different. My vantage point is not the same as your vantage point. You know this is true. Vantage point is very important in vision, is it not? Higher vantage point gives you the ability to see more. Lower vantage point limits your ability to see. God is able to see. We are told in the scriptures that God sees all things and knows all things. God is distinctly other than us as creatures. When we think about God's ability to see, we are wrong to look to ourselves and say, okay, how I perceive a situation, how I assess a situation is the same way God sees and assesses a situation. That would be wrong. God is flatly revealing here to us that He is different than us. Yes, our vision, yes, our ability to perceive and see is based upon his creative work in us. It is only a glim picture of what God sees. 
The Bible tells us that God sees all time indiscriminately. God is outside of time and space. He is not bound to time. That is to say that God does not see moments in time the way we do. We live in time. We live in the succession of time. God does not. He lives outside of the boundaries of space and time. Therefore, God's perspective is you Unique. It is other. It is different. It cannot be compared with any other. No one has the perspective that God has. Friends, that means that trusting the Lord is trusting that His vantage point is better than ours. It's trusting that the Lord knows best because He can see best when we're trusting the lord and and saying you know in the midst of a difficult situation we're not saying you know lord i'm just you know going all in just just relying on you no what we're saying is that i know your vantage point is so much clearer than mine and i'm trusting that you know best because you see best And so I cannot see right now. I I look at, as the Apostle Paul says, through a glass dimly lit. We, we We see in part. We trust that the Lord sees perfectly. Not only that, we see secondly here in verse 7 that, that God is other and He makes His decisions based on the heart and not on outward appearances. So God is not concerned with the way things look externally, but the way things look internally. God cares more about the heart of man, the will of man, the decision-making, the engine that makes decisions. Right, the, the word heart there is just a metaphor. It's not referring to your, you know, the thing that pumps blood in your body. Okay, uh, It's referring there to your will, your strength. When the... You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, right? This is an idea of your whole being, how you make decisions, how your mind works. That, that is your heart. And it is, as Jesus says, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts and wickedness and, and the like. The focus is stressed here that God makes decisions based on someone's heart how their heart, not on their external. Strangely enough, as Christians, we defy this truth. We work against this truth in many ways. One of the silliest ways we do that is by painting up a Jesus that looks attractive to the eyes. I used to always laugh once I read Isaiah 53. And I would see those beautiful pictures of Jesus painted all over and printed all over. Because Isaiah 53 says an entirely different thing, does it not? That he was so ugly, nobody was attracted to him. In other words, Jesus wasn't somebody who you said, man, that's that's a leader. Man, look at him. He's a sharp, he's a sharp-dressed man. He looks good. Looks attractive. Friends, nobody followed Jesus because he looked good. Isaiah tells us he was he actually repelled people because of his looks. People weren't attracted to Jesus because of his looks, but because of his words. 
And in grace, the Lord rejects these seven sons of Jesse. The, seven, the seventh son, so, so if we were just to take these sons on face value, the seventh son perhaps would have been the choice son. Right? If you seven being the number of perfection. But here even David falls out of that, right? He's number eight. And he's like, he's so down, far down the line, he ain't going to get nothing. He's at the bottom of the line. He, 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 he's so insignificant to this family. Note two things about him. Number one, he's out in, he's out in the field shepherding sheep. Now I know, I know we have this sort of nostalgic view about sheep, thinking it's some precious, beautiful thing just because you've been ruined by terrible Christmas plays. Sheep and shepherds is a nasty job. It's like working down at the sewer plant. Nobody wants to work at the sewer plant. Nobody dreams of being a garbage man. Nobody says, you know, when I grew up, that's what I want to do. I want to get down and get in sewers and pull all kind of feces out. That, that's what I want to do when I grow up. Nobody does that. Right? Nobody signs up for that. The shepherds was a relegated. Uh, slaves and those like them were the ones who were the shepherds. And here David is out in the field shepherding. Dirty, filthy, stinky. He's so insignificant to Jesse. Jesse doesn't even invite him to the feast. Now think about this for a minute. His dad says, nah, don't, there's no way David's getting picked. So whatever's, happening, whatever's going on here, we're not really quite sure, but clearly you got, you, got, you got chores to do, David. You need to get to your chores. David's nobody. He's insignificant. He's really nothing. Why take him away from the work for something that really has nothing to do with him? It's important to see here in the text that that's exactly who God wants. The insignificant, the ordinary, the nobody. Samuel asked, hey, is there another, is there, you have another kid? He's like, hey, uh, Jesse, if you forgot, one of your sons. Because the Lord said, I'm to anoint one of your sons. And he's just rejected seven of them. Are you forgetting one of them? Now, I feel Jesse's pain here. Like sometimes I've got to like count. I'm not sure of all my kids here. Do I have them all? Do, do we have numbers one through five? And so I feel Jesse here. I can relate with him. So as Samuel asks, is there another one? And the text tells us that there was yet another one. I want you to look real quick at verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest. Now that Hebrew word, that underlying Hebrew word there for youngest, translated youngest, also can mean smallest. And the idea of the text seems to imply both. Not only is he the youngest, he is the smallest. And I think the context leads us to that because Samuel is focused on height and God chooses someone who's small. He's a runt. He's the running litter. He's the little guy running around. I mean, that's what he's known for. He's the, he's the shortest little kid. They want him. Now, this doesn't imply that he was a weakling. I mean, after all, he's ripping lines apart. I mean, clearly he, he's got some strength in him. The point here is that he is understood to be the one who's ordinary, who's nobody special. If it was based on appearances, 
Nothing impressed him about him. You would miss David in the crowd. If you were at the ball game, you wouldn't say, oh, there's that Goliath killer. There he is. No, you would miss him. You would walk past him because there was nothing about him. But there was something about him that was attractive to God, namely his heart, a heart that would follow him. And I wonder in your own life, how often do you tend to work on the external rather than the internal? How do you tend to evaluate yourself based on external matters, like the way you look or the way you appear to other people, rather than a godly heart and a contrite spirit, humility. You know, as a culture, we invest a lot in looking good. Even recently, I was talking with a pastor. He was was frustrated. He was frustrated because he knew that his ministry experience didn't look good on paper. In other words, he hadn't served as a senior pastor. He had labored hard as a lay elder, worked hard among the members to shepherd the flock well. But he didn't have that preaching experience. He didn't have that teaching experience. And you could tell in his voice there was this sort of this frustration. Man, if I would have just made different decisions, if I would have taken a different job, if I would have had these sort of churches on my my list and said, you know, on my resume it says that I worked here and I did this and I did that. And I stopped him and I said, look, brother, What matters most is not how you look on a piece of paper, but your heart. And I encouraged him with the ways that he had, by God's grace, shepherded well. And I'd just seen the way he had ministered to people and heard rumors about his care and love. I said, bro, that means more than anything you print out on your Dell printer. Friends, how often do we do that? We live so that we can look good on paper. We look good externally. Maybe you've come this morning and, and you've done a good job putting on this sort of facade like you've got your life together, everything's good, you smile, you're happy. Rather than being honest and say, you know what, I have not invested a lot this week on my heart. I haven't been in God's Word allowing the, the words of Christ to inform my heart. I haven't spent time in in humility, in prayer, humbling before God. You see, prayerlessness is pride. When we don't pray, we say, God, we got it together. I'll call on you if I need you. Boom, crash happens. All right, I need you. I I crashed the car. Um, I crashed my life. Rather than humbly living. What we'll see in in the person of David is one who is humble before the Lord. One who invests on his heart rather than on the external. Well, friends, God in His grace provides what the people needed. And I know we're running out of time, and I just want to show you something so tremendously sweet in this passage. In verses 14 through 23, verses 14 through 23, we see this very strange thing happening here where where Saul is being tormented by the Lord, right? The the, the Lord uh, is tormenting him. The Lord is judging him for his rebelliousness against him. The Lord is punishing him because Saul has rejected the Lord, has ceased to follow the Lord. And I want you to see that in grace, God saves him through David. 
This king will be a savior. He will save his people. And here we'll see that the enemy that Saul faces is the Lord himself. He's tormented by the Lord. And by grace, God provides a king who will deliver even evil spirits. He will slay giants. He will kill armies. He will deliver God's people and lead them to follow him. In the text, we are told that David was notorious for his musical ability. God raised up a king that not only would be a great leader because of his heart, but one who would craft these beautiful psalms that we even use today. In Psalm 125, Psalm of David. We see that God in his grace provides a king who is glorious. An ordinary king and nobody. Just an ordinary guy. A shepherd. Dismissed and relegated to nothing in his family, a a runt of the litter. But who, by the Spirit of the Lord, will do great things. You see, that's what distinguishes David and Saul was the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, the point of the story isn't that David is a great guy and an amazing leader. Now, I know we've all heard that sermon, and next week it's going to be a sweet time, right? David and Goliath, we all know that story. 1 Samuel 17, all about being David and going and fighting your Goliaths in your life. But that's not the point of any of that story. It's not the point of this story or any of the stories of David. David is not some warrior king to be impressed by. He is an ordinary guy who has a great God who does extraordinary things through him. And so God, the point of this is that God isn't looking for you to be extraordinary. God is not looking for you to be able to pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and get your life together. If you are embattled by sin, if you are enslaved to sin this morning, what Jesus wants from you isn't for you to fight your way to freedom, but to find freedom in him. By repenting of your sins and trusting in Him and finding His sacrifice as the sufficient means to earn God's love in your life. God is not looking for the extraordinary. He's not looking for Superman. He's looking for Himself to be the one glorious one. God is looking for those who will be faithful to Him. Those who will obey Him. And friend, I wonder this morning, what are you known for? What is it that people know you for? Is it, is it the extraordinary ways that you do things? Is that how awesome you are or how awesome God is? When you tell others about yourself, do you tell them about all the great things you're doing or the great things God is doing? Is He the, the primary subject who is at work in your life? Or are you the main character of your story? When's all said and done in your life, as your friends and family reflect upon your life, will it be God who is seen as the hero? Or will it be you? God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. We're reminded of this this in the gospel. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. 
other words, you're just a bunch of nobodies and really not all that impressive. But God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised even things that are not to bring to notice the things that are. So that no human being can boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God works, God chooses insignificant and ordinary people so that he will receive the glory. This is why he saved you. A rebellious sinner, deserving judgment. Not on anyone's top 100 list. Not making it on any magazine cover. You're going to Be born, you're going to live, and you'll die, and you'll be forgotten. You'll be forgotten. In a couple generations, no one will ever, won't even whisper your name. Won't even know who you are. But God does. And God saves those who fade into human history. He saves them and invites them into his family For His glory. He does it for His glory alone. He does it here by raising up a king who is ordinary, unimpressive in the eyes of the world. So that through this story, we can get a foretaste of how God works through an ordinary king. An ordinary king born in Nazareth. One whose mother comes from Bethlehem. In the story, or in the scripture reading earlier in Isaiah 11, we are told that there is yet another son of Jesse to come. It's not Eliab. It's not Adadab. It's not Shemaiah. And it's not David. There yet was another son that was to come. We are told through the prophet Isaiah, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight, what will be his joy, what will be in his heart, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see. Or decide disputes based on what his ears hear. But the righteousness he shall judge the by, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek on the earth and shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The eighth son of Jesse was a foreshadow of David's greater brother, King David. Pointed us to King Jesus. The king that we all need. The king whom we are told that the Spirit of the Lord rests upon. The one who has all wisdom and knowledge. The one who perfectly obeyed his father who invites you today.
to follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed at the way you work. Even these sweet breadcrumbs in Isaiah 11 that take us to Jesus causes our souls to be comforted with the truth that you are a God who fulfills all promises. You truly are a God who can be trusted. And right now, Lord, we pray that we would find in our hearts trust in you. Lord, that we would depend upon you in all things in our life, that, that Lord, we would see you as completely other than us. That we would see our desperate need for King Jesus. This ordinary carpenter who proved to be your only son. Who died the perfect death for our sin. Lord, may we trust him this week for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.